Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, here with my friend uh, Jeff Kassman. Thank you so much for joining. This is uh, Restoring the Faith podcast. Uh, this is breaking news to me, Jeff. I don't know if you knew about this. I'm going to try to do a screen share here of this uh, this bombshell article that just came out in One Peter Five, and um, I'll scroll through it while we're talking here, but. Clandestine ordinations against church law, lessons from the cardinal who became Pope John Paul II. And I'm not sure how, who this other cardinal is or how to say his name. I, I'm, I suspect you know how to say his name. Uh, cardinal Slippy, who was uh, revered in Czechoslovakia as a, a giant of the church there and almost unanimously uh, believed to just be uh, you know, a very saintly man. He suffered in, in prison under the communists for 18 years. Uh, before the events that uh, we're going to talk about today. This is a, a piece by Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, a friend of RTF and certainly a friend of tradition. It was published two days ago. I believe we're the first to talk about it on YouTube. This is also the first time that I'm simulcasting to YouTube and to Twitter. I think it's on Twitter and to, and to Facebook. So uh, you're here on the maiden voyage, Casman. Great. Glad to be with you. Um. I'm not sure where to start because uh, clandestine ordinations are are sort of a taboo thing that a lot of people don't really want to talk about. It's, right. it's something that uh, has happened throughout church history. It's not really well understood. And a lot of, I'll, I'll call them neo-trads, neo, neo I guess, sort of view it with skepticism and say that this is, you know, that's for a time, you know, communism is different than what we're living through now and, and, and whatnot. What are your, what were your initial thoughts when you saw the article? 
I had not heard about this. Uh, frankly, not a big fan of uh, George Weigel, and, and so uh, can't say that I read everything that he has, has written. Uh, although I was fa uh, familiar generally with this book, I did not know this story. And in fact, I've not talked to anybody, uh, trad or otherwise, in the last couple of days since this, uh, this story came out, who knew about this. Uh, everybody that I've talked to uh, is you know, surprised or, or shocked both uh, what happened and that uh, it was hidden. And then that later, uh, Boitia as Pope uh, revealed this to uh, Weigel. Um, it's all pretty extraordinary to me. Uh, it would be it would be kind of a kind of a big deal, I think, generally. But in the context of of what he did as Pope uh, and how he handled a similar situation, uh, it's really extraordinary. I think. Yeah, I uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, Kwasniewski goes on, and he immediately in the conclusion of the article. He, he, he says, you know, this, this changes the way that we can perhaps view Econ. And, um, and I, don't, I don't think that he's wrong in making the comparison. Where do you think the comparison is, is a direct apples to apples? And then where do you think, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of sort of, again, like the, like the neoconservatives, the, you know, the John Paul II crowd, uh, and also what, what I've sort of am dubbing as the neo-trad crowd, the, the COVID refugees that are now going to FSSP parishes or whatever, but still believe that, that Lefebvre is, is uh, a schismatic, let's say. So those two groups of people are still sort of hiding behind, you know, the differences. Where do you see the similarities and the differences? Yeah, I think for folks, uh, if you don't mind, let's just back up briefly, the, the folks who might be joining us who don't know what this is all about, that the very short version of events is that uh, as Cardinal in Krakow, um, Wojtyla ordained men from other countries uh, and then sent them back to those countries. Uh, and this was despite the explicit prohibition uh, that Paul VI had in place at that time, that men in those nations were not to be ordained. This started in Czechoslovakia. Uh, and it continued in Lithuania, uh, the Ukraine, uh, I think Estonia also. So the, the similarity that is, is clear is here we have a, a bishop defying an explicit order of the Pope as it regards uh, holy orders, specifically with the ordination of men. Uh, it, it's easy to see a few differences, of course, uh, but what we're talking about here is a principle, right? And uh, the principle really is about authentic obedience and how obedience should be understood uh, and, and what the hierarchy of virtues is within the church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, I think, I think you're right. I think we do need to, to take a step back and talk about obedience uh, for a minute because, you know, you steer, you still hear Jeff Kassman joining us uh, from an, the East Coast, or East Eastern Time Zone, anyway. Uh, you you still hear people say that you know you owe obedience to your bishop in all things but sin, all things but sin. If that were the case, uh, the bishop could make you wear a clown suit to mass. Right. It's not. If that were the case, he could he could request that you marry his niece. He could order you to tithe a certain amount. Um, if 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 obedience is in all things but sin. Um, 
I, I think that's a scare. I don't know that really that, that that's a defensible place to be in, in terms of a definition. Right. Yeah, that, that is a common definition of obedience. And it, it reveals part of the uh, the crisis in uh, formation that we have, not just among the, the laity, but among the you know, the clergy. Mm-hmm. I've heard that many times growing up, growing up, attending the Novus Ordo and, and uh, you know, going to CCD and catechism and, uh, you know, uh, taking graduate level theology. Uh, I heard that so many times, uh, well-intentioned, of course, and then in, in the history of the Catholic Church, obedience is a, uh, an exalted virtue, but obedience uh, properly understood serves faith. And and that's what we have to remember in the hierarchy of virtues. They're not all equal. Mm-hmm. And and so, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's true that the, the clergy and religious in particular have a higher duty according to obedience uh, because of the vows that they have taken. Right. But the, the laity, with regard to obedience uh, to individual clerics, uh, is a very different thing. Uh, even when we have a, a, an explicit law that objectively binds us, those laws must be ordered uh, to the good or to the, um, the good of souls. That's why the law exists. And so yes. when we have these conversations about obedience, which are increasingly common as the crisis becomes uh, I don't know that it's really worse than it's been in the last 40 years, but as it becomes more apparent to more people as they're encountering it for the first time, Mm -hmm. uh, we're transported back instantly to that conversation that our our Lord had, the the principle that he taught uh, about healing on the Sabbath, about rescuing that one lone sheep. It could not be more clear what the principle really is here, namely the salvation of souls, the good of souls. Yeah. And, and so many people today have fallen into not just a, a neo ultramontanism as it regards the papacy, yeah. but a clericalism in general. Um, and, and, and that's what the, the core of, of this is. So when you ask what's what's the same, what's different? Well, the, the difference is in the accidentals, frankly, the, 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 the details. What's the same is, is the essence of, of it. What's what is proper obedience? And okay, so uh, you, you said that that laws should be ordered towards the good, and we know that the highest good of the church is the salvation of souls. And this really speaks to uh, when you talk about Acone, uh, when you talk about the the consecrations of 1988. Um, suddenly, this has implications on what many people view today, I think wrongly as a, as a schismatic act. Um, it couldn't be, it couldn't be more ironic though, Jeff, that the, the saintly Pope, uh, or at least the Pope who has been declared a saint, who is really the culmination of the second Vatican council, who's the one who, who excommunicated, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre, uh, for, for consecrating bishops against his will, was himself consecrating and ordaining men against the will of Rome when he was wearing a red hat. I mean, how is that not the height of, I, I don't want to say the word hypocrisy, but I, instead what I will say is irony. Yeah, it, it's, it's extraordinary, is it not, that, that a man who, um, you know, perhaps in a, in a more serious way defied the Pope. Rem- remember, Paul VI had issued this interdict in Czechoslovakia uh, designed to protect the church 
Now, we, we can decide whether or not uh, that was a good policy. You could easily disagree. Clearly, Voitia disagreed. He did not believe that that policy prohibiting consecrations and ordinations was prudent. Um, but it, it was an explicit interdict for the safety of the church, for the preservation of the church, even, you could say, because what Paul VI believed, rightly or wrongly, was that the Soviets were willing to crush the church, kill anybody that was necessary, uh, and extinguish the faith in that country. And we can see that in Russia herself, they, they almost did. It was extraordinary, the level to which they, they suppressed it. So it's really kind of uh, extraordinary that in that situation, he so uh, easily defied the Pope. And and uh, many people have come to his defense, and I think there's a defense to be made, but they're not making the right defense. Uh, canon lawyer J.D. Flynn, who's uh, pretty active on Twitter, uh, and I've got nothing against the guy. Uh, in fact, we share some, some common enemies, so I, I tend to think well of him. His attitude about this was, eh, not only is it not a big deal, it's, it's all okay. Of course, he doesn't know canon law, uh, apparently, because it's not okay. Bishops yeah. do... Bishops cannot defy the Pope. And um, the fact that that Wojtyla got permission from the bishops who had themselves been suppressed yeah. means nothing. You can't, in, under the law, you cannot give that which you do not have. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have permission to ordain, so they could not delegate that permission to their vicar general or, or mm -hmm. to anybody else, let alone a bishop in a different jurisdiction. Uh -huh. uh, so it's, it, it's a really big deal. And, well, I, you know, and, and I think I think the the initial response uh, amongst the J.D. Flynn crowd, let's say, is to minimize this, to call it a nothing burger, because uh, it's it's really a rejection of the of the conclusion. Uh, you know, you, you can't really argue the logic of at, on its face. This appears to be hypocritical. Uh, it's certainly ironic. Uh, and so if you don't if you don't want to walk down that particular path and you just say, oh, this is a nothing burger, you know, there's nothing yeah. to see here and try to sweep it under the rug. This is extraordinary. Now, my question, though, and I, I, I don't know the answer to this, I pray, and you may not either. Why are we just now hearing about this in 2021 on October 13th of 2021 on the you know anniversary of Our Lady's uh, 104th anniversary of Our Lady of, of, of Fatima and the Miracle of the Sun? This is when this bombshell report comes out. I would think that we would have been using this argument, we, the royal we, the traditionalist movement for, you know, for for eons. And, and now we just have we have a brand new argument that was just given to us, probably by Our Lady. I don't know. Yeah. You know, um, I've not talked to a single priest of the society who had heard about this. So uh, the SSPX, who of all people would would be, you know, most most benefit by having revealed this and, and used it as a justification. Uh, I sent an email out to a number of those priests that I, I know. Not a single one had heard of this. Uh, and and some other very uh, well-formed people that I've spoken to had not heard of it. I think it, there's a couple things. And it's revealed by the, the conduct of people today. It's what it's what uh, I believe Sherlock Holmes talked about, the, the dog who didn't bark. Um, the, the, the lens by which people view JP2 is, is so much of that heroism. He was a, a virtual martyr and he was he was a saint from the day he was born and he did no wrong and he fought the communists to, to the extent that that is the definition of his life, uh, which I would say is, is grossly incomplete once we've evaluated his papacy. 
that's the extent to which the world looks at him. And so any any narrative that's contrary is either just dismissed as not true, which I've seen a lot of, of that among the response. A lot of people just say, oh, Weigel just made that up for some reason, you know, that it's not true. Of course, it's been confirmed by a second author, a second journalist. Uh, yeah. I, I think that there's there's just this blindness to any criticism of him. I have been in the yeah. past 24 hours uh, just excoriated yeah. for for stating the truth about this situation. And I've not even said that Wojtyla was wrong to have done this. Uh, That's right. In fact, I think it's reasonable to assume that that he was doing what he thought was best for the salvation of souls, which is the whole point. Which is commendatory. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, as as uh, Kwasniewski himself said, uh, he did what he thought was right. And and history probably would say that he was right. What Mm -hmm. what is amazing about this is that given his own willingness to defy not just a a minor ecclesiastical law, but an explicit decree by the Pope himself in this matter, that when he became Pope, he didn't have a a greater tolerance of the situation with Lefebvre. Again, you don't need to be a fan of the SSPX. In in fact, Kwasniewski himself is not a fan of the SSPX, Mm -hmm. uh, stating that he, he thinks you should only go to their masses if there's no other option, which is itself a kind of an interesting thing. Uh, for him to say, but but my point is, he he's no fan of the SSPX. He's he's not a, a defender of theirs in any way. In my experience, um, he's stating the, the obvious truth that that when uh, JP two was pope, that instead of instead of remembering back to that that time himself um, yeah. and and thinking about it, he reacted in an exceptionally harsh way. Yeah. Um, and uh, that yeah. that is extraordinary uh, for us I, to look I, at. I, I think also just with respect to uh, Dr. Kwasniewski, we are probably witnessing the public evolution of his thinking on this particular matter uh, anyway. Um, I agree with you, sure. Jeff, that, you know, he's it's he's he's no staunch defender of the SSPX. Yeah. Uh, and really, in a, in a public fashion, neither am I. But um but I think it is certainly worth noting that, yeah, I mean, he's the one in his article who says, okay, what, do, what are the implications to Archbishop Lefebvre? Yeah, I mean, he's the one who drives the point home that this is a vindication of Archbishop Lefebvre uh, in, in a lot of ways. In, in, in fact, and, and I appreciate that clarification. I don't think that he's hostile to the society, but I, I just wanted to point out that he's not one of the usual suspects when it comes to defending Lefebvre. But there's something even more profound about this. When Wojtyla did what he did, we were still operating under the 1917 Code of Canon Law. Mm -hmm. When Lefebvre did what he did in 88, there was a new Code of Canon Law in place, which, as it regards this issue of consecrations and ordinations, gave a lot more latitude and much more Mm -hmm. deference to the intention and the mind of the man doing the, the act Right. The 1917 code wasn't so explicit about that. It just said, hey, if you do this without permission, you're, you're suppressed and or excommunicated. The yeah. new code basically says, hey, uh, you know, the mind of the person doing this has to be taken into account and the yeah. circumstances and, you know, which which is proper. There's a lot of things about the new code that are that are problematic. But but in this case, there there's all sorts of room to excuse what Lefebvre did. In fact, many people have said it's it's significant that JP2 did not declare 
him uh, as, you know, as, as excommunicated, he said he did this late sententiae. Mm -hmm. That is, he did it to himself. Mm -hmm. Minor difference under the law. But uh, given the new code of canon, uh, it makes this whole issue even more profound and, and yeah. from my perspective. Yeah, that's a great point about the 17 code, uh, because there's there was it, it appears as though uh, John Paul II, while he was a cardinal, uh, for sure broke canon law. Um, but he but he did so for a specific reason for the to to um, ensure that the church was not extinguished behind the Iron Curtain. Um, I want to I want to ask sort of two more buckets of questions, if I can, while I still sure. have you, Jeff. The first is, you know, whether or not you think that we are now in the situation uh, practically of living behind the Iron Curtain. You have you have the, the co COVID communist revolution happening. You have Vatican III essentially happening in the church. You have, uh, you know, traditionis custodes uh, being implemented slowly, uh, but everywhere. Um, you know, with respect to the extinguishment of the faith, um, are we in a similar situation? And is Dr. K right in calling for clandestine ordinations to continue on tradition? Yeah, I think the, the, the parallel uh, certainly is apt. It's it's a very similar situation. One of the most extraordinary things I've, I've witnessed in the last 48 hours since uh, this article came out was people saying, well, yeah, but he was fighting the communists. Remember, you know, Lefebvre has no comparable justification. Uh, it, it's It's been 60 years, basically. People still don't believe that we're in a crisis. They still don't believe that modernism uh, has has taken over they they still don't care about the good of souls uh so you know i think jp2 may have been justified to do what he did he was motivated by the threat posed by the communists against the church against human lives they were killing people right uh and if and if they knew what voitio was doing they would have put him in jail that's how serious it was and yet the threat posed by modernism is so far worse on, on on a logarithmic scale. It's it's, you know, the Richter level, right, would be like a nine yeah. because it's souls that are being lost. Yeah. Tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of souls lost yeah. because of the threat posed by the, the modernists. And people still today, right now, even as their bishops have have refused them the sacraments and shuttered the churches willingly, yeah. not because of modernism, not because of laws, freely, voluntarily withheld the sacraments. People still don't believe that there's a crisis, there's a problem. And so, mm -hmm. yes, I, I think um, Dr. K is 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 on an evolution like many people have been and is, is waking up to realize the severity of the situation. And yes, sometimes... Uh, what appears to be disobedience is is actually authentic obedience ordered to the higher good. Yeah. Well said. Uh, so final uh, topic, and this is this is the point where I'm going to get myself in trouble, uh, but I'm I'm happy to do so here with Jeff Kassman because uh, you're no stranger to getting yourself in trouble, uh, at least with Church Maleficent and others. Um, <sighs> And, and this may be a point on which you and I don't agree. And I'm going to bring up Archbishop Vigano, but I'm going to, within the context of other retired 
members of the Episcopacy as well. You know, I appreciate a lot of what Archbishop Vigano says, but as I look at what he's saying, he's not out there ordaining men. He's not consecrating bishops. What he's doing in the service of tradition is not too dissimilar from what you and I do. We're putting out blogs and we're putting out videos. We're putting out messages. We're influencing anybody who will listen to us. To me, that's that could be construed as all talk, no action. If you take the point of view that I think that, you know, the, the, the conclusion of, of Dr. K's article that we are in a crisis, we have to do what it takes to, to uh, ensure tradition survives. Why, why don't we see Vigano out there ordaining and consecrating? And the same holds true for the other, you know, sort of traditional leaning bishops around the country. I'm thinking of a few, and maybe I won't name their, their names, but a lot of them are in the Midwest. Um, many of those names would be, you know, kind of household names to people who've been in the traditional movement for 10 years or more. Um, I don't necessarily want to call them out, but the, I guess the question is, is why are these guys sort of taking the hint and doing this? If, the, if, if, if they see what you see, what I see, the existential threat to the faith that modernism represents. That's a that's a great question, and uh, you know I uh, sometimes I, I cringe a little bit when I hear people referring to Vigano as uh, a new Athanasius. Uh, I, I don't think they know the story of of Athanasius. Uh, they certainly don't know the story of his contemporary Eusebius, who did in fact, uh, when fighting the Arians, continue to ordain and consecrate men as he went on his travels. Um, you know, I, I think the reality is most of these guys who've been ordained, certainly those that have climbed the, the ranks of the hierarchy, um, they, they generally want to get along and they don't want to be punished and they don't want to be made an example of. And they've all watched what has happened to Lefebvre. I mean, it's been, what, 30 years now. And, and still he, he, you know, his legacy is, is suppressed and, and under persecution. His his priests are, n- are not even in some cases considered to be legitimate priests by people who should know better. Th- that is that is a degree of martyrdom that most people are, are not interested in. And uh, and a lot of these guys claim that well, we're going to fix it from within. Right. We're going to we're going to bite our tongue in seminary. And then when we're ordained, we're going to you know, we're going to be able to change things. And of course, we see what happens. These men come out of seminary. Uh, they become pastors eventually. And then yeah. there's very little change, right? Because yeah. at that point, they've got even more to lose, right? And and so I think there are very few bishops who, who think that there's a, a big crisis. Yeah. Uh, let's face it, we, we trads, uh, whatever that means. We're about 1% of the faithful worldwide. Uh, it mm-hmm. sometimes seems like it's more than that because you're in a bubble, but, but that's the reality. Uh, mm-hmm. That other 99%, the vast majority of them are, are still asleep. They're mm-hmm. still in the matrix, so to speak. They, they don't think there's that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't really understand that there's a difference between pre and post conciliar times and so forth. Uh, I, I would be shocked if there is any diocesan bishop or retired uh, who is willing to step out and do what Lefebvre did. I, I think um, I just don't think that they've got it. They don't have that mm-hmm. courage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right about that. I mean, part of it, actually, this whole story kind of comes full circle to that. The whole point that what Votia did is such a big deal is 
he was the only one doing it. Well, his, his colleague also was involved, um, uh, uh, Cardinal Slippy, uh, who was even more extraordinary story, right? The, the Vatican mm -hmm. called him to Rome on yeah. the premise of taking care of him and so forth and helping him out. They gave him a place to stay right there in the Pope's own household. He consecrated three men as bishops and um, huge deal, huge affront to to the Pope. The, the fact that this is a story is because there were only those two that we know of mm -hmm. doing this. Even during those threats, the, the, the other bishops were not willing to do it. Modernism mm -hmm. is a much you know more difficult, murky thing to deal with. Most of these guys are modernists themselves. I, I don't. I don't see it. I mean, after all, the, the fraternity of St. Peter has been, you know, promised uh, their own bishop for 30 years. That hasn't happened. And you don't see people leaving them in, in you know, droves to, because of that issue. They're still dependent upon, you know, begging uh, to, to get their priests ordained. Yeah. Now, very, uh, very good discussion. Jeff, uh, do you want to take a minute and just uh, let us know any of the things that you're working on uh, outside of this particular topic? Sure. Uh, very excited to, to share with you since the last time uh, we talked uh, that I'm a, a co-founder of the Catholic Men of America, which is a professional business fraternity for Catholic men in the business world uh, that is devoted to helping men uh, network to gain uh, better employment for business owners to hire better employees, uh, to uh, acquire capital for growing their businesses and other peer-to-peer -peer relationships. Uh, we are the largest uh, fraternity of this kind with more than 10,000 members already. Membership is free, so I would encourage anyone listening, uh, if you're a man, you're in the business world in any degree, we'd love to have you join CatholicMenOfAmerica.com. Very cool. Uh, thanks so much for joining. And this is the maiden voyage of using StreamYard. I hope, uh, leave a comment if you thought this was a smoother stream. I have more capabilities. I can show your comments and, and do all kinds of fun stuff. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thank you.